0: Yeah, I hope that um, through, uh, well, first of all, a little bit about Pastor Rosnell's uh, uh, reading Scripture. Um, it may seem a little confusing to hear someone speak in a different language and try to follow along in the Bible, um, but that is just a blessing to me. When when we lived in, in Greece, we went to a, a, a Greek evangelical church where we uh, sang simultaneously in English and Greek, so overhead projector, same verses, but different language, and it was completely confusing, um, and uh, um, but as as we were there longer, I, I just really began, began to love it, and then uh, the pastor would, would read either in Greek or English, depending on who he had to translate, and then um, th- that person would, tra- he'd pause, and that person would translate. We had 10 different language groups in this church, and so then they would pause again, and all the, in the pews, all these people would be um, translated in different languages, and it was complete confusion. Um, and praise God for how beautiful that was. And one day, for those who love God, for those those who know Christ, we will all stand before Him uh, of all nations, of all tribes, of all, of, of all languages, and and do so without the need for translators. And what a what a blessing that will be. Uh, I hope uh, this morning in, in, in the um, service you notice that we have a theme of just praising God's majesty, um, and uh, so let's pray in that this morning. God, uh, <laughs> we just sang to behold our God, and yet um, if we were to be able to behold you, we, we would fall on our faces, close our eyes cry out, uh, how unworthy we are, and yet you call us to you. That is a mystery. I, My brain can't wrap around, but I give you glory and thanks and praise that that is true. Uh, may these words uh, be from you. Uh, may your scripture and, and uh, the words we speak of your scripture, that our discussions later, are, are the way we act on your scripture throughout this week, be a pleasing aroma to you. May they bring glory to you. Uh, we pray this all in the name of your Son Jesus. Amen. So we are in the book of Job, chapter. Uh, Pastor Rouse and I'll just uh, preach from chapter uh, or spoke from chapter thirty-seven. Uh, we're going to start though in chapter thirty-two. If you go back a little ways, we started this uh, series um, uh, ten weeks ago uh, on on the book of Job, and we heard about how. Job was this righteous person who God selected. He he actually brought his name up uh, before Satan, uh, ordained suffering uh, for him in in his in his in God's sovereignty. He he chooses this this righteous man of whom he boasts. Uh, to suffer terribly there's these two rounds of terrible suffering that job endures, and on top of that, he has to hear the the voice of despair and he's accused not only in heaven uh, by Satan but e- even accused uh, by by his his wife with that despair. He loses his status, his livelihood, ten children um, and, and his his friends initially uh, come to show him sympathy and 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 to comfort him. And, uh, uh, but then they turn on him, and through the lies, uh, we heard of, of oversimplification, they accuse him of earning his suffering because of his, his wickedness. His suffering damages his relationships uh, with his friends and with his community and even with his wife. And then as he buys in to these lies, we see that it damages the relationship between him and his God. And it culminates in uh, the last few chapters, uh, what we heard last Sunday from Pastor Michael, what, what, he, what Michael called uh, a statement of extreme arrogance in which Job uh, arrogantly justifies himself before God and, and even declares that God needs to give him an account for his suffering as if somehow God was accountable to Job. And so after making this declaration, the very last verse of, uh, of chapter 31, we read this, the words of Job are ended. And immediately after that, we take up the first verse of our text today uh, in, in, in chapter 32, and we, find, and we hear that the words of his friends are also ended. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. He was righteous in his own eyes. What a dangerous place to be, to be righteous in our own eyes. In Deuteronomy, after the uh, people receive the law of God, Moses warns them, says, we should not keep doing what we're doing, just everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Uh, in, the, in the book of Judges, twice we, we hear, there was no, at that time, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In Proverbs, we read, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. And there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Again, what a dangerous place to be, not only for Job, to declare himself righteous in his own eyes before the God of all creation, who says, there is none who does good, no, not one, but then even to to demand that this God of heaven and earth, the only truly righteous one, be accountable to him. In the face of that arrogance, uh, which we would say we would justly deserve God to, to strike Job down immediately, to take vengeance on, on this affront to his sovereignty, in his sovereign mercy and kindness, he lets those words just hang in the air. And the words of the friends are ended, the words of Job are ended as they all go silent. And then into the silence, we are introduced to a new person who speaks up, who, who has, as Michael said earlier, we, we haven't met before. He hasn't been mentioned uh, before him. He, he is a man named Elihu, which, which means, he is my God. And, and he's the only character uh, we see in, in, in the account of Job for which we have a genealogy. He says he's the son of a man named Barachel, which means, uh, blessed be God. Uh, he, he comes from the land of Boos, and he's from the family of Ram. And the one other thing we know, or a few other things, we know that he's younger than all four men, we, we hear that later, and we know that he is angry, right? We, we, we know that he is angry, and it will cause him to, to, to speak out. We, we hear uh, that Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He he burned with anger against Job because he had justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now, Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, in case we missed it, he burned with anger. He was really angry. He will condemn Job, he will condemn Job's friends, uh, and, uh, and, and then he will speak some truth about God. One, one commentator I, I read said, Elihu makes a significant contribution to this book, uh, namely how the righteous should respond to suffering. And this is Elihu's conclusion. In your suffering, submit to the sovereign God by crying out for His mercy, by listening to His voice, by, by considering His works, and by trusting in His ways. You see, over the past 29 chapters, Job and his friends have framed Job's suffering in, in the perspectives of this world, the perspectives of, of humankind. Job's friends have come to the conclusion that Job is responsible for his suffering and thus has the power to make it stop. Job has concluded that his suffering is unjust, and therefore God must be unjust. But now Elihu comes and he demands that Job move his focus from himself and his suffering to God, and in doing so, he provides a prelude before God, uh, b- before God Himself will speak of His sovereignty. And so, let's consider Elihu in his words. Again, he burned with anger. He burned with anger four times uh, in in this in, inter- introduction. Uh, he, they re- reinforce that Job or that Elihu burned with anger. He then goes into some cultural platitudes of of why he has been so slow to speak as a younger man uh, before these older four men, Uh, but then he lets loose on Job's friends. If we move forward a bit, um, and we will be going through several chapters, so we'll be hopping here a bit, but if we go uh, 32 verses, uh, starting with verse 11, "'Behold, I waited for your wise words,' he's speaking to, to Job's friends. "'I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say,' I gave you my attention, and behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. They are dismayed, they answer no more, they have not a word to say. And shall I wait, because they do not speak, because they stand there and answer no more? He's rebuking these three friends who have accused Job of wrongdoing, but have no proof to back it up. He says, in all of their words, they have not found evidence to back up their accusations, and they've not been able to answer Job's questions. And so now they stand qu- silent because they have nothing left to say, and they have nothing left to say because they are out of words, because they're out of wisdom. If indeed all human suffering is due to human wickedness, uh, if it is true that all prosperity, as they say, is due to human innocence, then it must be man who is sovereign. Now, Elihu turns from that to rebuke Job. And he goes on in chapter 33. Uh, he, he He says, he rebukes him, not in the accusations like, uh, like Eliphaz and, and, and Bildad and, and Zophar, the three friends. He does this in, in a way that doesn't, just, that doesn't try to pin his suffering on Job's sin, but instead brings to mind Job's, Job's sin against God in his response to his suffering, his self-righteous arrogance, his accusations against God's character so again, in in chapter 33, starting at verse 8, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure, without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a, vi- in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit his life from perishing by the sword. Job has asserted that he is pure without transgression and that God does as unjustly counted him as his enemy and will not answer him. And Elihu replies, pure? Without transgression? Before the Almighty God? Who do you think you are? Indeed, he does answer your cries, but you often are too deaf to hear his answer. And then he answers with wisdom that, that Job's friends were unable to grasp. Some suffering indeed does come from the consequences of our sinful actions, but other suffering, even terrors in the night, comes as a merciful gift of God to warn us, to change us, to humble us, and even to save us. A little later in this chapter, we we read that God often does these things for our good. Verse 29, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he might be lighted with life, the light of life. Pay attention, O Job, listen to me, be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. John Hartley writes, although Laihu's approach is close to that of the three friends, he differs from them in that he does not assume that all suffering is a punishment for past sins. He teaches that misfortune may befall a person in order to awaken him from some wrongful attitude or unconscious error, and thus keep him from taking a wrong course. Another major difference in his teaching is the emphasis that suffering may be an expression of God's mercy rather than his wrath. It is not man who is sovereign in his suffering, but God Almighty, and so it is to God's sovereignty that we must submit in our suffering. And Elihu continues, and now he, before all four, he just, he he defends and exhorts uh, God's God's justice. He says uh, in Job uh, chapter 34, verses 10 through 15, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness. And the Almighty that he should do wrong, for according to the work of man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him of truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not perverse justice. It starts to sound a little bit like what Job's friends were saying, but now he continues. Uh, who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world, if he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath? all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Again, the first part of that sounds a lot like what the friends were saying, that God will repay each each person according to his deeds, but then Elihu adds a missing puzzle piece, a missing ingredient to the oversimplification of Job's friends, that God is patient. Peter would later write, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. Because if God were not patient, then all flesh would perish due to our sins. So to think that suffering could be a sign, not just of God's righteous wrath, but His righteous mercy is difficult for us To receive until we consider that such temporal suffering on earth might indeed save us from dying apart from God and suffering eternal suffering in the fires of hell. The depths of God's mercy are much more apparent when we have a clear understanding of the gravity of our sins and the punishments they deserve. In chapter 35, Elihu gives Job a glimpse of this. Elihu answered and said, "'Do you think this to be just? "'Do you say, it is my right before God "'that you ask, what advantage have I? "'How am I better off than if I had sinned? "'I will answer you and your friends with you. "'Look at the heavens and sea, "'and behold the clouds, which are higher than you. "'If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him?' And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hands? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness, a son of man. There is a difference between Elihu's accusations and those made by Job's friends. Joe's friends and their inability to see that suffering could come from anything other than our own actions, right, gives inordinate power, even sovereignty, to the sufferer. But Elihu points out that our sins and deeds are in a different context. Our sins are worthy of death, and God smiles upon the true deeds of faith. Scripture tells us that throughout the Old and New Testaments. But we see from verse 8, and and we see from verse 8, that that our sins do have consequences, sometimes terrible consequences on ourselves and, and on those around us. But to give either our sins or our deeds power to cause God to act with either punishment or reward is to reduce God, the sovereign king of the universe, to a puppet. Elihu says you cannot change God and his actions by either your sins or your good deeds. He will condemn, punish, discipline, reward, and forgive whom he wishes by the counsel of his will and by no other way. He is God. There is no other. But Elihu warns now, do not mistake God's patience. Do not mistake His sovereign timing for ignorance. Continuing in chapter 35, verse 13, Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see Him, that the case is before Him and you are waiting for Him. And now, because his anger does not punish and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth and empty talk, he multiplies words without knowledge. Elihu's condemnation is not the condemnation that, that accuses him unjustly of bringing suffering on himself, but instead he condemns Job for for first justifying himself before God and then accusing God of injustice, Elihu closes this part of his arguments by giving us a foretaste of how God Himself will answer Job's insolence. It says again, is, is uh, in, the, in those. Verses fifteen and sixteen. Because his anger does not punish, punish, and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. We will hear this again next week when, when Jason preaches on chapter, uh, chapters uh, forty. I'm sorry, chapters thirty-eight through forty-one. Elihu continues now with what will become an introduction to the theophany. It's, it's God singing this hymn of revelation about Himself to Job. Again, we'll hear that from, from Jason uh, next week and how, how he, uh, he calls on Job to behold God's magnificence, His majesty. He calls on, on, on Job, His friends, and Through the gift of this scripture, he he calls on us thousands of years later, right, to focus not inward on ourselves and our suffering, but outward toward God and towards God's sovereignty in the midst of our suffering. In Job chapter th- uh, 36, moving forward to verse 17, but you are full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware lest wrath entice you into scoffing and let not the greatness of the ransom turn you aside. Will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity, for this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in His power. Who is a teacher like Him? Who has prescribed for Him His way? Or who can say, you have done wrong? In His sovereign will and in His sovereign timing, God will punish the wicked. He will rescue the righteous. But do not set your eyes so intently on that punishment and reward that 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 your wrath will cause you to scoff or 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 or, or, or that you, you will be tempted right to, to turn to iniquity in able to in order to alleviate your suffering Do not be so focused on the things of this world that if your desired outcomes do not happen in your desired time that you might be tempted to accuse God of wrongdoing or try to take His promises into your own hands. Instead, Elihu beckons, Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Verses 24 and 25, Remember, to extol His work on which, of which men have sung, all mankind has looked on it, man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable. In the next chapter, Elihu is going to break into a song about God's majesty that I believe is one of the most beautiful sections of all Scripture. We heard the first verses this morning from Pastor Rosanel in Haitian Creole. Let's hear it now in our own language. Chapter 37. At this also my heart trump- trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heavens he lets his, it go in his lightnings to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars, his, his voice, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend, for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth, and likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and and remain in their dens. From its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them upon the face of the inhabitable world, whether for correction or for love, his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his clouds to shine? Do you know the balancings of his clouds, the the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge, you whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of a south wind? Can you, like him, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Shall it be told him that I would speak? Did a man ever wish that he would be swallowed up? And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor, God is clothed with awesome majesty the almighty we cannot find him justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate therefore men fear before fear him he does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit behold our god holy 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 Now, throughout all these speeches, as Elihu's words are ended, he is not saying that our suffering isn't real. He is not saying that suffering doesn't matter. He isn't saying that our actions have no impact or consequences. But he is saying that in this real suffering, we must submit to God's sovereignty by crying out for God's mercy listening to God's voice, by considering God's works, and by trusting in God's ways. Again, our suffering is real. Job has lost his livelihood, status, all 10 of his children. He has been stricken with loathsome sores across his entire body. His human relationships have been broken with his friends, his community, even his wife. He is suffering. He is afraid And he is weary. Brothers and sisters, your suffering is real. There is nobody in this room from little Judah to our most senior saint who has not suffered. Many of you are suffering terribly today. In only the past weeks, We have seen the deaths of a mother, a brother, an aunt, and even a teenage daughter. Beloved parents are in the hospital right now, suffering terribly. Many others are suffering with illnesses that are acute or chronic. Marriages are under attack. Children are at odds with their parents. Finances are failing. Relationships are broken. Jobs have been lost. This is all real suffering. So let us be clear. Job or Elihu is not asking for Job to pretend that his suffering doesn't exist. And I am not asking you to put on a brave face and say, it is what it is. No, your suffering is real and it does matter. And the suffering of those around you is real and it does matter. Scripture tells us to cry out to God about our suffering and to respond to the suffering of others in real, tangible ways. That crying out is often the first step of submitting to God's sovereignty in our suffering because to do so is to admit that we need help, that we are not in control. As long as we think that we are in control of our well-being or our suffering, we are contesting God's sovereignty rather than submitting to it. We are in the same place as Job finds in place, shaking, finds himself shaking his fist at God and demanding that God give an account to him. But by crying out to God. Instead of against God, we take on the role of the supplicant. We we are dependent upon the only one who can save us, the one whom Elihu assures us is listening and will answer. And so we cry out for his mercy and then we listen for his voice. And and Elihu says, keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Keep listening. We might not comprehend the the voice of God fully, but we must listen to it intently if we are to submit to His sovereignty. There is a mistaken idea in Christian circles today, some Christian circles, that God no longer speaks. That having completed the inspiration of the written scriptures, which we rightly say are altogether sufficient and authoritative and complete, that somehow God closed his mouth and became silent. This is not true. One of my favorite books, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Tozer writes this, God is speaking. Not God spoke. God is speaking. He is by nature continuously articulate. He fills the world with his speaking voice. The voice of God is the most powerful force in nature. Indeed, it is the only force in nature, for all energy is there is here only because the power-filled world, word is being spoken. The tragedy is that our eternal welfare depends on our hearing, and we have trained our ears not to hear. So how are we to retrain our ears to listen to the voice of God? Tozer says this, it is important that we Get still to wait for God. It is best that we get alone, preferably with our Bible outspread before us. Then, if we will, we may draw near to God and hear Him speak to us in our own hearts. I think that for the average person, the progression will be something like this first, a sound as of a presence walking in the garden, then, a voice more intelligible but still far from clear. Then the happy moment when the Spirit begins to illuminate the Scriptures and that which had only been a sound or at best a voice becomes, becomes an intelligible, intelligible word of a dear friend. Then will come life and light and best of all, ability to see and rest in and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and all. Friends, keep listening to the thundering of his voice and to the silence of of the snow that he commands to fall on the earth. And listen for his very breath that freezes the broad waters fast. Listen with your mouth closed and with your Bible open. Listen alone in the morning and across the table in the evening with friends and family. He still speaks, and as you listen to his words, to his voice, consider his works. God thunders wondrously with his voice, Elihu says, and he does great things that we cannot comprehend. As our physical and spiritual ears hear, our eyes also behold. Our skin feels, our our nostrils smell, unless you've got COVID. Uh, Our tongues taste God's workings throughout His creation. And while we cannot fully comprehend what these senses witness, we are called to consider them. What kind of God would do this? So Elihu exhorts Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. God's works are evident. They stand before us. They should strike us with awesome wonder. Elihu uses the imagery of nature, of God's power. The weather even does his bidding. Mankind is bound and struck in awe. Beasts go into their lairs and they, they remain in their dens. Paul later writes in Romans that his works are so clear That even those who do not have the gift of Scripture, of written word, right, could know God's nature from observing God's work in creation. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely his, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. If God can display His invisible attributes, His eternal nature or power, His divine nature to to those uh, people who do not have the Bible by just using His creative works, how much more should we who do have this book be driven to worship when we consider his wondrous deeds. So having cried out for mercy, having, having listened to his voice, considered his works, the next thing we must do is trust in his ways. We can rest in the assurance that as Elihu has told Job, justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Why we often do not see the reasons why, when, and how God acts. We, we do not know if He does this for a correction, or, or for His land, or for love. Right? Submission to God's sovereignty requires that we must trust in His ways. Again, it's not a fatalistic acceptance, just lip service where we say, God's in control. It's an intentional, pleading, trusting knowledge of God's sovereign power, his character, his justice and mercy. It is the trust of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with your whole heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. It is the trust of Isaiah 55 that God's ways are higher than our ways and, and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It is David's trust in Psalm 3, when he is being chased and persecuted by his own son, that that he, he knows that his entire life, his protection, his salvation, and even lying down to sleep and rising again are only by God's sustaining grace. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. This is not a false trust that absolves us of action. It is not K Sarah Whatever will be, will be. We simply need to stand by as spectators as God does what He will do. It is the trust that, that, that God is not only our stronghold and our deliverer, but He is the one who prepares our hands for battle. It is the trust in His ways that takes on Christ's yoke, as we heard at the beginning of our service today, not to sit and stand in in the barn aisle, but to go into the fields and work. It is the trust in His ways that strengthens us to give sacrificially of our time, of our gifts, of our treasure, trusting that God will provide. It is the trust that God's ways are just when mankind's ways are not. It is the trust that often starts like Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day and night, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. And it is the trust that continues to cry out as Psalm 22 concludes continues, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. It is the trust that laments racism, war, injustice, greed, sickness, death, corruption, abortion, murder, human trafficking, pornography, abuse, slavery, intimidation, addiction, and all other kinds of oppression, cries out to God in pain and sorrow and asks Him to show us the way, to give us the will to oppose persecution and comfort the afflicted, all the while proclaiming that God's ways are perfect, and that His timing is perfect, and that one day God will be glorified in all the earth. Friends, you will suffer in this world, and you will continue to suffer in this world. Suffering is both a consequence and a necessity in this fallen world since the first humans refused to submit to God's sovereignty and instead chose to rebel against Him and establish their own sovereignty, death and suffering have entered this world. All of us will encounter it, both as heirs to the rebellion and participants in it in our own right. And through that, we have all earned the reward of death and suffering, eternal suffering. But we also suffer in this temporal world. Some of that suffering, like our first parents in the garden, uh, comes from the consequences of our own sin, and some comes from the consequences of the sin of others. And some of that suffering is unearned, and often we do not know whether it is for correction or for his land or for love that God causes it to happen. But we do know that one reason God allows, ordains, and even causes suffering is to guide us, to draw us, to compel us toward the only source of true comfort, salvation through faith in, in the God the Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So have you embraced that comfort? Because it is the only way that you can be comforted in suffering. We will suffer, but we can either suffer in rebellion or in submission. We can cry out against God. We can shake our fists at God. We can demand that He be accountable to us. Or we can submit to God's sovereignty in our suffering by crying out, to God's mercy, listening to His voice, considering His works, and trusting in His ways. Amen. We've got one more song to sing again, a song of praise. How great is our God